So these two college students decided they would makeshift their own raft. Sounds like a great idea. And so they put together a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of Home Depot buckets, a kiddie pool, uh, all wrapped together with some tape, and they set out to sea in Santa Barbara. One would expect that these college students probably wouldn't get too far. Well, they actually did. They got past the breaking of the waves, and they ended up getting. They were so successful at launching their makeshift raft that they were now hundreds of yards out from land. And they were now stranded on their raft and unable to get back. It looked a little something like this. They made the news because they were so successful at launching this makeshift raft. And if you take a look at it, you kind of wonder how they would even be able to do that, given how shoddy this thing is. And notice here, alcohol was not a factor. It's not that they were drunk. Uh, they were just acting crazy, and, and they set off uh, with their own little, with their own raft. You want a closer look? Here's what it looks like. <laughs> what was surprising is that the thing is actually seaworthy. You kind of, how, how? What are the physics of this? How does this actually, how does this work? It's kind of a funny story. It reminds me that a lot of people like to make shift uh, their own religion. They like to makeshift even Christianity in some way. And they hob hobble a lot of pieces together and the hopes that their faith is seaworthy and that when they set out to sea, to the sea that the, the, the vessel of their faith is going to withstand the breaking of the waves and the high seas. They, they, they're unsure about whether or not it's going to be seaworthy ultimately. Most people, when they think about their faith, they get a little concerned. Like, is this actually going to be able to stand the test of time? Is this going to help me get to the celestial shore? And in this short series in 2 John, we're going to look at a few elements of what seaworthy faith looks like to have an actual assurance about what it is that you believe and why you believe it. And even really to gauge your own maturity as a Christian to say, am I getting this or am I trying to hobble together my own religion? Do I understand what it means to be a Christian so that I can be 100% sure that I am right with God and that I'm headed the right direction and that the vessel of my faith is not my own making. It's actually something that God has granted. This is something that I am not uh, conjuring up. It's real. It's it's. It's something that's going to get me from A to B. And knowing whether or not your faith is stable is supremely important because whether or not you're right with God is obviously going to affect your relationship with him, but it's going to affect your relationship with your friends, your parents, your employers, your future college administrators, your everyone. Everyone in your life is going to be affected by whether or not your faith is stable. Because here's the reality. Everyone's faith is going to go through trials and storms and winds and waves. I mean, it's going to happen. Knowing if your faith is stable is going to make all the difference for whether or not you get through the trial and the temptation. How do I know if my faith is 100? It's actually there. It's actually real. Well, the seaworthy vessel is made up of two very critical elements, and it's simply this, truth and love. 
Actual Christianity is founded upon the twin virtues of truth and love. And when those two things work together, that's when our faith gives us confidence and assurance. And that's what 2 John's going to help us diagnose. Take a look with me there if you have your Bibles. I hope you do have your Bibles. And if you're taking notes, and I hope you're taking notes, we're going to take a look at just these first three verses as we unpack this. Take a look with me, 2 John chapter 1. This little letter is written by John the Apostle. He calls himself the elder in this passage. Um, probably because by this point, he's kind of an older guy. He had lived a long life. God has protected him at this point. And now he's writing to a small church, a gathering of believers. He calls them the elect lady. And he says, the elect lady and her children. And the whole idea behind this is that he's kind of uh, symbolizing them by a woman. And in fact, the church is called a her. And we just think about it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And so the church is recognized as, as a feminine entity. In fact, that's why we're called the bride of Christ. This feminine entity is going to be wed to a masculine Messiah. Now, if that makes you feel a bit icky, welcome to the club. That's part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Um, we are called the bride of Christ collectively, but the ladies in the room are called the, the, the brothers and, the, and sisters of the Lord, I guess. It's, it's a give and take here. Okay, so John, the apostle, writes this letter to a church, and he says, look, uh, here are some things I want you to know. And it's only 13 verses long. Let's look at the first three together. The elder to the elect lady and her children. As I explained, John writing to a church and the individual members in that church. He says this, these are the people whom I love in truth. And you're already seeing truth and love working itself out here. You're going to notice this all throughout his short little letter, but especially here compacted on the front end. He says, uh, whom I love in truth. In truth, and not only I, I'm not the only one who loves you in truth, but also all who know the truth. In other words, I love you through this truth that we share called the gospel. We, we live in this shared reality. And it's from that place that I show my affection towards you, my, my church in Christ. And I don't, I'm not the only one who loves you. Everyone who's a Christian who names the name of Christ, who knows the truth, they also love you as well. So he's assuming that the Christian church has these twin virtues of truth and love, and that when they're wedded together, there's that shared unity among the body. He says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He says the church loves itself, the church loves one another, because that truth is abiding in us. And if you think about the word abide, that means more than just a temporary kind of like, I understand that, but rather, it's I, I, this lives in me, this is who I am, this is who we are. The truth abides in us, and will be with us forever. That is, that the truth that we now know and understand doesn't leave. It's something that endures forever and ever and ever. And verse 3 is the clincher here. And this is still his opening introduction. He says, grace, mercy, and peace, and get this, will be with us. He's not wishing this. He's just recognizing, look, grace, mercy, and peace is ours. It's going to be with us. And that comes from a source, from God the Father, twin source, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, and here you go again, in truth and love. Truth and love are essential in our faith to the point where John, as he composes this letter, his whole intention is to help you weave these twin virtues together and say, look, if I understand the truth, then I'm going to love. And if I love, I'm going to understand the truth. They go together and they come from the Father and from Jesus himself. And then he goes on to say, look, you have to understand, church, that the whole, the, the, this whole reality that we live in is from God the Father and Jesus, and it's a gift of his grace, his mercy, and his peace. And those things are going to be with us. They are ours by birthright. But here's what I want you to understand in this very first, in this very first point here. If we're going to see, okay, the, 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 the Christianity is founded on truth and love, I want to make an important observation about that truth and love. 
It's essential that you understand that truth and love for Christians is a gift that is given to us. I put it like this. You need to accept that truth and love are unearned gifts of God. And that is, they come to us because of God's kindness. It's his richness and generosity. They come to us not because we're smarter, faster, better, more intelligent. They come to us not because we're Americans. They come to us because God has decided to shed his generosity upon us. I've talked about the rich kids of the internet before, but I think it bears repeating here. These are the guys that you look at them, right, and you wonder, like, how, how is it in your mind, like, oh, I'm going to take a picture in front of my Ferrari, and, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post about that so that you know I have a Ferrari. And here's a picture of my box of Rolexes and my Nike this or that. I'm going to take a picture of it so you can see it and admire it. And then they go and post these things online for everyone to gawk at and to observe. Now, it's off-putting, isn't it? Is anyone else off-put by these things? It's like, uh, I mean, some of it is like, oh, what do you got? But on the other side, it's like, oh, okay, I don't want want to know. I don't care. It's gaudy. It's it's obnoxious. I don't want to see this. And part of the reason why is because these young people are sharing and showcasing and even showing off dad's money. Like, you didn't earn all that. Yeah, you got a Ferrari, but that's dad's Ferrari. No, yeah, you got 13 Rolexes, but those are dad's Rolexes. I mean, if we're going to get honest here, you're showing off something that, that really is not from you. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't invest your money wisely. This is dad's generosity being shown to you, R-K-O-I. Now, here's the thing, guys, and I don't want to offend you, but Christians are rich kids too. You know what I mean? Christians are rich kids too. We're not rich kids of the internet, but we're rich kids of Heavenly Father. We are those who have not earned all the blessings that we have, but we are benefactors of that. God spends all of his efforts upon us, and now we get to enjoy the good things that he's given us. But here's the problem. Sometimes we can forget, just like the rich kids of the internet, that we're spending Jesus' riches. When you understand truth, you're understanding Jesus' truth. When you, when you give and understand love and give it to others, you're understanding Jesus' love who first loved you. In fact, Paul contends with some of the Christians in Corinth. He says to them, look, who sees anything in you? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Dad gave you the Ferrari, so why are you pretending like you're the one who earned that Ferrari? Why are you boasting in yourself as if you're the bee's knees or you're the most cool kid on the block? The riches that we have are Christ's riches. So if we're going to understand the reality of our unearned gifts, and we're going to be confident in our faith, young person, here, here, listen to me close. Take your eyes off your notes for a second. Follow me. If, and by the way, thank you for taking notes. I love that. All of y'all should be taking notes every single time I open my mouth pretty much. Okay? But pretty much, I said. Not all the time. Okay. Here's what I was trying to say. Look, most of you guys in this room, as I'm looking at you, profess faith in Christ. Most of you. Some of you guys are still dragging your heels, and I'm praying for you, and you're going to come to faith eventually by God's grace. But for those of you guys who do claim the name of Christ, and you say, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. Jesus is the one I subscribe to. Here's some, sometimes the problem that we might have, especially at a church like ours, that where we value solid teaching. We value Bible study and scripture memorization. We value knowing the languages. So we, your pastors study Greek and Hebrew, and sometimes we'll bring it out in sermons just to help you understand a little better. But you know what happens when we start going through some of these, some of these uh, trainings is that you can easily have a puffed up head, right? And you look down at the other church down the block, and you're like, these guys are using the message Bible. 
Or you might look at your friends at, who go to a different church that's, you know, close, but, you know, maybe we're not of the same feather. You know, we got a lot of different uh, beliefs, still orthodox for the most part, but different beliefs. We'll look at them and say, whack jobs, right? How can they not? Why don't they get this? They're being so obstinate. They're, you know, they're this or they're that, or, you know, they're, I look down on them because they don't get it like we do. And I want to balance this because I'm not saying that we don't want to identify false teaching. We always want to identify false teaching. And we always want to go back to our Bible and say, what does God say about this? But here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to balance with it. While we do that, we never look at that and say, it's because I'm smart. Well, we're never going to say that, right? You're never going to say, I'm smarter than they are. But sometimes when you're thinking about those other churches and those other, those other people, those, I mean, even the other religious groups, you're going to look at them and be like, why don't you get it like I do? It's as, it's as plain as a nose in your face. You know, my point is, the reason that you know, the reason you get it, the reason you have love for Christ is because you're smart enough, right? Right? You're smart enough. The reason you know, the reason you get it, the reason you have love for Christ is because why? Talk to me. His grace, his grace. You love Christ because he was gracious toward you. You know the truth and a great deal of it because he was gracious toward you. He, in a way that was not related to your smarts, your background, your ethnicity, your anything, your wealth, your giving to your church, your niceness, your, your kindness, in a way that was unrelated to all of that, God decided to shed his grace on thee, right? It's our, our American song right there, but that's a lot of truth. God gave you his grace, and now because of that grace, you now better understand, more than most people, what the truth is and how to love others. Recognize, young person, if you're a Christian, recognize this is all of his grace. You are not smart enough, wise enough, good enough, anything enough. God's grace is the foundation of everything that we know and love. Do you, do you track with me on that? God's grace. Truth and love are the foundation of our Christian faith. But that truth and love is shown to us by God's grace. Let me put it like this. I got a couple quick subpoints for you. Surprised by that? Of course not. Let me just put it like this. You are a fully, fully a product of God's grace. You're fully a product of God's grace. When, when John the elder writes to his, his, uh, the elect lady and her children, he talks about truth and love. But in verse 3, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In truth and love, this begins with Jesus. It's, it's maintained by Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, but also in this church in particular, now, Paul says to us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is, what is it? Not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. And when you think about works, you don't think about like, oh, working hard for my salvation. Think about your wisdom, your intelligence. Think about your upbringing. Think about your mom or dad. And I mean, it's not a result of any external circumstance. Why? His whole purpose is so that no one could boast. God's super, super concerned that you not boast about your salvation. Now, again, you're never going to say probably I'm smarter than you because I'm a Christian and you're a Buddhist. You're never going to say, probably, I'm, I'm wiser than you or I'm smarter than you, inherently better than you because I'm a Christian and you're a Mormon. I hope you don't think that. However, I'm not saying that Christianity 
is somehow inferior or on equal playing field. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that the reason you know that, the reason you know that Christianity is true and that you have love for God is because God put it there. God gave it to you as a gift, and you simply responded. And even your response, by the way, was God's activity inside of you. Never let yourself be bigger than your britches, okay? Don't give yourself a big head. Don't let yourself grow a big head. God is super concerned that you not boast. He doesn't want you to boast about your salvation. He wants you to boast in him. Christians are fully products of God's grace. On top of that, Christians receive the truth by the Spirit, which is to say the Spirit of truth is how you know the truth. So if you understand the words that I speak up here, if you listen to Pastor Mike's preaching or any other preaching that is Bible-oriented, when you get it, you walk away and you say, yeah, I understand that. It's because the Spirit of truth is revealing it to you. In fact, uh, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the person who's not a Christian, can hear the same truth that you do, but you, because of God's grace and his spirit within you, you receive it, you welcome it, you love it, you cherish it. That is a work of God's spirit. So as you start thinking about, okay, is my faith seaworthy? Is my faith going to get me to the end and get me to heaven? Your faith is, of course, going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be revealed in the way that you're trusting his word. And if you love his word, if you trust his word, it's because his spirit is in you to make you say, yes, I want that. I need that truth. If you don't have that, there's a deficiency there. But Christians of all stripes, of all ages, whether you're a new Christian or a longtime Christian, all Christians love the truth. And that's because the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, indwells us and causes us to yearn for that. Christians receive the truth by the spirit of truth. So to make the point clear here, the reason that you love the truth, young person, if you love it, it's because the Spirit of God, oh, I'm spitting a lot today. Spirit of God inside of you makes you want it. He conjures it up in you, stirs up the affection. Christians love because he first loved us. And we said this already, but it's worth saying over and over again. Truth and love are unearned gifts. Love is something that was first and foremost shared and given to us. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, you have a foundation by which to love others because Jesus first laid it out for you. He showed you his love by demonstrating it on the cross. And so everything about who you are as a Christian, the truth and love factor, they come together underneath the grace of God. You are a Christian if you are one because of God's grace. He gave it to you as a gift which means there's no room for you to boast as if you're smarter or better than anyone else in the room, anyone else at your school, anyone else that you know who's of a different religious persuasion. You know truth. You know God's grace. You know things that they don't know, and you believe things that are true, objectively true, and they believe things that are false. But again, you don't get to come at that like, boom, I get it. You know, when, when, you're, when you're in school, and I don't know, the highest math I did, I, I got, what's the highest math that they offer at school now? I know I got to trig at least, maybe more. I forget now. But trig, I worked hard on. I had to spend copious amounts of time immersing myself in trigonometry. Uh, but tell me that there, there are a few things that feel better than after laboring over a math problem and at the end getting it. Like, yes! Like, whoa, I want to punch a teacher. It feels so good. Like, it's so <laughs> good to get the right answer because I worked hard on that, man. I sweat. Don't punch your teachers. I sweat hard over that. And like, there's a feeling of pride. Like, yeah, I got it. 
You should never have that with your Christian faith, at least in comparison to other people. Like there's certain aspects where you're like, oh yeah, I get, the, I, I understand this new thing about God and that's fantastic. But you should never have that sense of like, I'm better than you. I know more than you because I'm smarter. I'm more spiritually mature. And again, like, I'm not saying that we're equal. Christianity is not equal. I'm talking about your heart right now. Unearned gifts, truth and love. It's founded upon that. God works, we respond. What kind of response do we have? Okay, uh, that, that's part of it. Second John chapter four, one verse. Let me, let me point out to you. Uh, one verse here, he says this. I, uh, John now getting into the meat of his letter. The first three verses were just introduction. And now he says, look guys, I rejoiced greatly. I was stoked to find out that some of your children, again, this is their individuals of the church, they were walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Pastor John, who's the elder now, he looks at this church and says, Dear church, I was stoked. I was outside of my head when I, I saw that you guys were obedient. This pastor recognizes, look, I love when I see you obey because God loves when he sees you obey. And to echo that, as your pastor, when I see you do things that are consistent with being a Christian, I, I rejoice at that. I love that. I thank God for that. When I hear you guys worship King Jesus with your voices and you're, you know, you're, you're giving him your real heart and soul out here, I rejoice at that. I love that. Why? Well, just like Pastor John in this letter here, the reason why is because God likes that. God is pleased with that. In fact, when you are in Christ, you need to realize that obedience to the truth is something that makes God's heart happy. Point number two, realize obedience to the truth pleases God. Timing on this is important. Okay, timing. We are released from obedience to the law for righteousness. Okay? We are released from obedience to the law for righteousness. But that does not mean that God does not delight in our attempts to be righteous after we have been saved. Okay? Think about a timeline. Okay, here's, here's you today as a Christian, if you are one. And let's just say this point right here in time is when you were, you profess faith in Christ, when you were made right with Christ. Everything before this, when you were walking the old lady across the street, when you gave your teacher the apple because it was teacher appreciation week, when you vacuumed the rug without mom telling you, all those good works are better than doing evil, but they don't count towards your righteousness. They don't count because you were unsaved and therefore all of your righteous works were as filthy rags before God. But then, then this moment happens. You get saved. You profess faith in Christ. And now, apart from all of your works, God now credits your account with the righteousness of Jesus. And now he says, okay, now go and do good works. Now go walk the lady across the street. Now go vacuum the rug. Now go give your teacher an apple because now those are righteous deeds that I count as pleasing. Why? Well, because Jesus now covers your life in such a way where all of your acts before God are received by him as righteous deeds amazing. Obedience to the truth pleases God. See, this is, there's a difference between positional and practical righteousness. Positionally, all of us who are in Christ, you are 100% righteous before God. All of us. That's the positional righteousness. Practically, though, it would be crazy for us not to acknowledge the fact that everyone here is in a different age and stage of spiritual development. Practically, you get more and more righteous as you, get, as you grow older in your faith. That's the difference. Positionally, justified. Practically, you're still being sanctified. 
That difference is what, uh, is what I'm talking about here. You can't please God to, to gain your justification, but you can please God by your sanctification. When you read your Bible, that pleases God. If you're doing it by faith, you're not doing it to earn his favor. When you pray, that pleases God when you do it by faith and not as a means to earn his favor. When you sing worship songs to him, it pleases God as long as you're doing it by faith and not a means to warrant his favor. You get my drift here. All of this stuff works together. My son, Adam, he's getting into music. And I love this. I love music. I love music. I love different kinds of music. I used to play guitar. I still play guitar-ish. I don't really play it that much, but I play guitar. I love music. I love jazz. I love hip-hop. I love R&B. I love even country. Even country. I love a lot of different kinds of music. So my, my son, uh, he's been picking up the guitar. And so like he's been trying to play different things, you know, pull up the tabs on the iPad and different things like that. And so uh, it's cool when he's like, hey, dad, check this out. And he'll just do his little, da, 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 you know, or, you know, he, or he'll do the, uh, the, the white strike. Dun, 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 dun. That's annoying as <laughs> all get out. But I'm proud of him, right? Uh, he'll, he'll play it. I'm like, oh, it's good, son. I, I love that. And here's the thing. He, one of the reasons he loves music, I think, is because I helped birth that love in him. Like I'd show him bands and people that were really good and like, oh, look at this artist. He was really good. And so when he's showing me that he delights in something that I delight in, it's like saying, essentially, I love you, dad. And I want to, I want to emulate some of the things that you've shown me. It works that same way with God. When we show God, look, God, I love the things that you love. It pleases him. I love the things that you love. And that's where we come in here with our sanctification. When we exercise loving the things that God loves, it pleases his heart. Again, if you're in Christ. And it's done as an act of faith. Now, here's a couple observations about that, that, that obedience to the truth. Number one, uh, God still commands that obedience. And did you notice that the way that John talks about it? He says, Look, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Note this, that it is commands and not suggestions. Now, because God is good, his commands are always good. The difference is that we're not commanded to obey the law for our righteousness, Okay. Here's, okay, here, that's a big difference. Practical versus positional, or rather, positional versus practical. You are not commanded to obey the law for righteousness. Do you hear that? That's an important phrase. You're not commanded to obey the law for your righteousness. Give me your eyeballs. You, you tracking with that? You getting me on that? Okay, you are commanded to obey, to obey the law, however, because of your righteousness, because it is already yours. Because you are righteous in Christ, now, as a Christian, you obey God's commands by faith. And here's what's beautiful about that. Here's, this is going to blow your mind. It blew my mind this week. I know this truth, but as I read it afresh, I'm like, oh man, this is, I just want to flip over the pulpit. It was just like, no, this is impossible. This is amazing. No, God commands it, but he empowers it as well. So when God tells you, look, I want you to walk in the truth, he doesn't just say, go, go do it, figure it out. You could do this. And if you don't, he kicks you in the head like, oh, you got this, man. Come on. I told you already. Now, sometimes as a parent, I feel this. Like, like how many times do I have to tell you, turn off the light? Like, I know you, all your parents, they tell you, like, turn off your bedroom light. Why is the light still on? Like, I, I feel like part of my, 99% of being a dad is turning off the bedroom light. That's all. <laughs> turn it on. Like, turn it off. Why is this light on? Like, did you know how much electricity costs? God, thankfully, is more patient than I am. He's not going to come at you and be like, turn off the ladder. I told you. God says, look, obey me, and I'm going to give you the grace to obey. 
I'm not going to just tell you what to do. I'm going to empower you to do the very thing I'm telling you to do. Let me show you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So important that you get this. Take a look. Okay, we're going to go through this slowly. I want you to see this and to savor it like a delicious appetizer. This is, uh, this is a mozzarella stick of a verse right here. Feel this. Love this. Okay, now this first line here, this first line, scary. Work out your own salvation with fear. Man, that's terrifying. I can't do that. This appetizer just became vegetables. I, like, I can't. Like, I, just, I can't even choke that down. But then he says this. Look, he says, work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why fear and trembling? For, because of, it is God who works. Get this. Oh. You did me dirty, keynote. All right. Well, I'm not going to annotate. but you, Okay. God who works in you. Okay. Work it out. Because he's working in. Fear and tremble because when you're obeying, it's God who's doing that thing in you. What thing is he doing in me, Pastor Rutt? Well, I'm glad you asked. Take a look here. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe the activity of God in your soul. He wills it and he works it. When you desire to open up your Bible, if you're a Christian, that's God in you. Think about that. When you have that inkling inside of you to say, man, I, I really want to pray right now. That's God working in you. Now, you have to respond to that, and you go work it out. You go pray. You read your Bible. You do the things that God prompts you to do. But the very desire in your soul to do righteous activity, if you're a Christian, that's God in you. You ever think about that? God is stirring up your affection to do the very things he wants you to do. And then not only that, when you go to your desk or you go to your bed and you open up your Bible, like, I want to read it, I'm going to read it. So you open up your Bible. God's not only the one who's causing you to volitionally uh, or to, to des desirously want it, but to volitionally do it. Okay, Matthew, vacuum the room. Okay, Dad, I guess if I have to. And then I go over to Matthew, and then I tell him, dude, I'm going to give you 100 bucks if you do this right now. So, oh, that sounds good. Okay, okay, I want to I vacuum the rug now. And so instead of just walking out of the room and leaving Matthew to vacuum the rug, I go and I stand behind Matthew. I put my hand on his hand, and we put it on the vacuum together. We do this together. Like that's, I mean, that's a super creepy illustration. But <laughs> the point remains, that's exactly, not exactly. It's kind of how God works through us. He gives us the desire and he makes us to do the work itself. We're cooperating with his spirit in that. So God tells you obey. And then he says, I'm going to give you the power and the will to obey. Pfft, amazing. You ever think about that? That's how God works with us. Your obedience is pleasing because it's him working in you, empowering you by his grace through his spirit. That's amazing. Young person, do you get a little more now how you cannot be boastful about your salvation? And even your sanctification. If God has grown you in your faith, praise God for that. And I literally mean that. Praise God, not you. We cooperate with him. And there's a, there's a place to say, look, I'm proud of you. He did a good job. There's a place for that. But primarily, we thank God because it's God doing the work in us. No room for pride, no room for boasting. But as a New Testament Christian, obedience to the truth pleases him, and we should do that. We should seek to please him and obey him. Why? Because God now joyfully receives our obedience. As I already said, he receives it because it's covered in the righteousness of Christ. So even your worst days, your days when you're just like, man, I was in a bad mood today, I, I, you know, I... 
snapped at the dog and I kicked him. I mean, it's one thing to kick the cat. Everyone's okay with that. You kick the dog, suddenly you've offended everybody. You kick the dog and so now you're just having a really bad day and then you snapped at your mom. Your teacher said something and you, know, you got a bad grade and so you were just all, all kinds of just nasty this day. Even then, whatever acts that you respond to in faith are acceptable to the Father. He's pleased with your acts of obedience because Jesus' righteousness covers it. Our awkward and fumbling attempts, attempts at righteous behavior undergo a transformation every time we do them. They become pleasing in his sight. Really quickly here, let me just show you a couple quick verses. You, we saw this just a few weeks ago, right? Uh, we're supposed to walk and to please God. Do that more and more. In other words, you can please God by the way that you walk. You, know, you have that in First Thessalonians. You also have Colossians 1.10. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him. That's part of our job as Christians. We can do that after we've been saved and justified. And of course, this last passage here, Hebrews 13.16, don't neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God now joyfully receives our obedience. Oh, young person, I, I hope that you get this. If John could say, look, I rejoice, I, re I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Know that your pastor, I love this when I see that, but God, more importantly, loves your obedience as a Christian. Strive to make him pleased with your life because it's possible now. In Christ, it's possible. Last few verses here, verses five and six. Here's where John gets to his ask, what he's really getting at. He says, look, first of all, happy I heard some of you guys are walking in the truth, but here's what you got to be aware of. I want you guys to exercise this truth in a certain way. Here's what he says. I, I now ask you, dear lady, again, we're talking about a church here, not a woman, and really the ask is not an ask. It's more of a like, let me remind you and tell you what you need to know. He says, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandments, but the one we have had from the beginning. And what's the ask? that we love one another. And this is love. He goes on to define it. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so John says, look, we, we got to walk. Uh, the, the church is called to walk together in truth and love, okay? Truth and love again. Salt, pepper, PB&J, country music, and lifted trucks. All these things go together. Truth and love are meant to coalesce in the Christian life and to be exercised day by day. Then he says, look, love and truth work out because you're following the commandments. You're walking according to those things, and that's how your life is defined. John asked the church to love one another and then defines it. Loving them is obedience to the truth. Now, and let me just quickly talk about the analogy of walking. You understand what it means to walk. And the word in the, in the, in the Greek is to actually like walk. But of course, it's being used uh, in, a, in a symbolic way. Walking, talking about the way of your life, the pattern and the cadence of how you live your life. Um, he says, uh, the way that you conduct yourself, the way of your life, look, walk in a certain way. Your walk should be distinct. You should look different than everyone else. When you walk, people should notice that you walk differently, that you live differently. Remind me of this thing called race walking. Have you heard of this before? Race walking is a real thing. It looks a little something like this. Race walking <laughs> is absurd. Like, race walking is, is an Olympic sport. Serious. So if you're like, my knees hurt when I run, you got race walking as an option. <laughs> race walking. Now hold on. Before you get too excited about joining a team, 
I do know Aliso is starting up a new race walking league. Is that, I mean, you guys have an option here. Okay. Race walking has a couple rules. Okay. First rule is one foot has to be in contact with the ground at all times. Okay. So one foot has to always maintain contact with the ground. Otherwise you're, you're running. So you have to keep in contact with the ground at all times. And then the knee of the front leg must not bend once it makes contact with the ground. So it's got to look a certain way. It's got to have a certain cadence. And if you don't walk that way, you get three warnings on the walk. <laughs> you get three warnings. After the third warning, you are DQ, disqualified. Christian life is similar in that we have rules that govern how we walk as well. Now, we shouldn't look like that. Praise God. But we should look different. <laughs> One major feature of our Christian walk is that our love is action-oriented. You need to conclude in your heart and mind that love is often not how most people define it. Our love is called to be action-oriented. It has, a, it has a, an actionable flavor. It has a bias toward activity. One of my favorite songs is the song Seasons of Love. Now, I've never seen the movie Rent, but it's from that movie or from that, that show. And the reason I love it is because the girl in the song, she, she does this uh, Seasons of Love thing where she sings and she hits her head, her head voice. It's beautiful. Nails it. But in the song, uh, she, they, they sing the song, um, you should measure your life in love. Like everyone's about love these days. Everyone loves love. Everyone's all about love. In fact, we sprinkle love all over everything we talk about. But here's the thing you should know. Love is not the same thing that our culture means that we mean. Uh, in other words, we have different definitions. Just to make my point here, uh, when I look up the word love in the dictionary.com, like it's not even top five, top 10. Webster's, however, if you look here, the, the, the definition of love, a strong affection for another. Okay, that, that's decent. Uh, attraction based on sexual desire. Okay, I think, sure, I, I disagree with that, but all right. Number three, affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests. So there you go. Uh, an assurance of affection. There's B here. So there's B, second category, second definition. An assurance of affection. I think it's closer to what we're looking at here. And then here you go. Warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. Three, the object of attachment, devotion, or admiration. And number four is the one I think most closely resembles the Christian definition of love. Unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. And there you go. One of the examples, the fatherly concern of God for humankind. Bing, bingo, that's it. That's kind of, that's what we're getting at. Except today, when we talk about love, more often than not, we're talking about the emotional infatuation that we have for other people. And that's why you have articles like Seven Signs, you might be falling out of love and how to fix that process. Don't fall out of love. I can fall into love with people. I can fall out of love with people. That's not how Christians understand love. And in fact, you might have noticed that right now, there's a lot of people that are getting, I mean, there's always people getting divorced, but more prominently, you got uh, Kardashian and, and Yeezy, and then you have Bill, Ga Bill and Melinda Gates. That one hurt. Bill and Melinda Gates have been together for like decades upon decades. I mean, and these people are divorcing in part because their definition of love is lacking. Jeff Bezos, uh, Bezo, he and his wife recently divorced. Their, 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 divor uh, their marriages are divorcing because their love is lacking. And what they think is like, I don't love you anymore. I don't have love for you anymore. I don't, I don't feel the feelings I used to feel. What's the problem with that? Scripture has nothing to do with that version of love. Now, granted, there are feelings. Feelings come along for the ride. But love in its heart is action-oriented. Love is a commitment to love somebody regardless of the dumb things they say or do, regardless of how much they annoy you. 
let, let me show you again here. Now, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning. This is what Jesus said. Love one another. He doesn't say, wait for the feelings. He doesn't say, hey, look for a special burning in your soul. He says, no, love is action-oriented. He just says, do it. Love one another. Two exhibits for you. Number one, Jesus' love is demonstrated by action. He's, he calls back to what Jesus originally said in John 13. I've already read it to you, but let me say this again. He says, look, I'm not giving you a new commandment. Why is it not new? Well, because Jesus already said this in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John is drawing back on what Jesus already set the precedent for. And by the way, when Jesus says, look, uh, a new commandment I give you, it's not new in the sense that it's something brand new. God had already told Israel to love their neighbor. Well, it's new in that Jesus uh, demonstrates the quality of that love by going to the cross for our sin. And so Jesus demonstrates an action-oriented love. Pop quiz. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wanted to go to the cross. True or false? False. He did not. His feelings at that point in time were, I don't want to go to the cross and die for the sins of people. I don't want to suffer God's righteous wrath. Instead, he submitted his feelings to the will of the Father. And so he puts his temporary feelings aside and says, it is better for me to submit to the will of the Father in order to accomplish the greatest good possible, which is our salvation. Jesus demonstrates his love by his action, his obedience to the Father. And so it is with you and I, young person. Real love is not feelings-based. If it's feelings-based, it's not going to last. I promise you that. When you have your first boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're only counting on those special magical feelings being there for your whole relationship, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Real love is not based on emotion. Real love is based on commitment, which, which results in emotions. Emotions come along for the ride. So here's my question. Am I displaying the love that I say I have to God and others? Most of you guys, again, I know we claim to be Christians. Are you showing that? Is there action in your love for others? Or is it just talk? Real Christian produces real love with real action. There's that passage I gave you. Let me go to verse 6 here. He says, and this is love. Here's his definition. This is love, that we walk, that we walk according to his commandments. Got a Jesus, and of course, you got love defined by John the Apostle as truth-filled action. Love is defined as truth-filled action. I put that together in that awkward phrasing because I thought it was important. Uh, love is not just action. Love is uh, love's action is defined by the truth. A company I used to work for, um, when we did customer service training, uh, I was told to tell our trainees, uh, look, we don't follow the golden rule here. And then people would be like, what? You're against Christianity? And then the, the, the punchline was, we follow the platinum rule. What's the platinum rule, Pastor Rod? Platinum rule, as I was told to tell it, uh, was not that we treat others as we ourselves would want to be treated, but that we treat others according to how they wanted to be treated. See the difference? So if, uh, if I really love Ghirardelli brownies, uh, and, and I, because I love Ghirardelli, Ghirardelli brownies, I made a huge batch, and then I brought them to one of you guys who's uh, gluten, gluten sensitive. I was like, here's my, gluten, here's, my, here's my brownies. You'd be like, you hate me, Pastor Rod, right? Because you don't, I'm gluten sensitive. You're going to kill me. Uh, so that, that's the idea. And I guess, okay, yeah, I understand that, right? I get that. I get that. But here's why that's problematic. Because even though that principle, and I still think the golden rule is superior, but that principle is unwise because we need a standard outside of ourselves. 
to define love. If, if I'm defining love purely by your preferences, then my love, uh, my love calibrated, my love measurement is lacking because your preferences should not define the way that I truly love you. God gets to define this. God gets to define what love is. And love can be, has to be more than just, like, I'm gonna, I want to make you happy with me. Love must be more than I want, to, uh, I want to tell you nice things about yourselves. You should say nice things to people. Genuinely love people by telling them things that are true. But that does not mean you should capitulate by saying things that are patently false in order to keep them happy with you. Here's what I mean. In the show that I like watching, The 600-Pound Life, uh, I, I know it's bizarre, but I like shows like 600-Pound Life, the doctor who does the, the, the gastric bypass thing, he always, I mean, because you're talking to like a 600, 700, 800 pound individual here. He always asks the person, look, uh, you know, John, how did you get to this size? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I just, I ate, I love food. And he says, no, no, no. Who's getting you the food that you eat? Like you're eating 10,000, 20,000 calories a day. Who's getting you the food? And then of course, there's someone nearby sheepishly saying, well, I guess I, I got him the food. And the doctor's like, why do you do that? You're, you're, you're building his grave. You're, you're, you're enabling him to continue killing himself. You've got to stop. And then the guy will say something like, or the gal, oh, I just love him too much. I just, I don't want to make him angry or upset him. The doctor's like, if you love him, you will make him upset. And you will not give him what he wants. You will give him what he needs. Ooh. I don't know why I sound like a monkey, but I was, trying to, I was trying to say like, oh man, wow, that's a, that's, that, that'll, that'll preach. Like loving people means that we love them according to the truth, a truth-filled action. It's got to be truth found from God's word that results in action. So if you know someone who is walking in a pattern of self-destruction, you would be unloving to tell them, look, you're such a great person. You're doing a great thing. I love that you're, you know, I love that you're doing things that are ultimately destroying your body. Oh, you're doing drugs. Fantastic. I'm glad that makes you happy. Oh, you're doing things that are fundamentally against everything God stands for. Awesome. We're, we're, we're the same, you know. I, I'm and, and here's another thing. You might go back to like, well, who am I to judge? Pastor Rod said, you know, we're all products of grace and I can't tell you you're wrong and you can't tell me I'm wrong. We're all just copacetically equal. That's not what I'm saying. Grace and humility does not mean that we don't call a spade a spade. In fact, some of the things I thought of that I know you're, you're going to be aware of. Like, okay, pronoun usage. If you have a friend who is a male and he's saying, look, my pronouns are she, hers, and she, <laughs> You know, my pronouns are she and her. Would you or should you as a Christian say, yeah, I, I, because I love you, I'm going to use your preferred pronouns even though you're not that. What does a loving Christian do? A loving Christian tells the truth, young person. I'm sorry, I, this is hard because I'm not going to be confronted with it as soon as you are. I'm, I'm trusting that. But man, that's, that's, the, that's the right call. If, if you came to me tonight and you said, Pastor Rod, I identify as a, as a German, don't, don't laugh, okay? I identify as a German shepherd. I said, don't laugh. <laughs> identify as a German shepherd. And if, and if you love me, Pastor Rod, you're going to call me Sparky from now on. I'm going to tell you now, I'm not going to call you Sparky and I'm not going to identify you as a German shepherd. I'm going to say, you know what, let, let's counsel together. Come to my office, let's talk about this. Where, where did you get this? Why do you believe this? but I'm not going to call you Sparky and start whistling at you when it's time to come to eat, okay? There's things I'm not going to do. And the same thing is true. When it comes to pronouns, look, okay, be serious with me for a second. This is an important one. When it comes to pronouns, people are struggling with real mental, emotional baggage that makes them want to tell you, look, call me this thing. Call me this, this gender. 
or call me, you know, they, theirs, and them, to, to not even refer to me with a pronoun. Uh, when they come and tell you that, you are being uh, brought into their contorted view of reality. They're crafting a narrative that does not even get anywhere close to what God says is the way the world works. You would be unloving, unkind to start referring to them by their pronouns. Well, that puts me in a sticky spot, Pastor Rod, then what do I do? What's their name? Call them their name. Well, that's going to get really repetitive really quick. Okay. Okay. But you cannot. And I, I don't have a chapter and verse to tell you you can't use pronouns that are, that are contrary to their gender. But I can tell you, it seems pretty clear to me, based on what we're looking at here, that truth and love go hand in hand. Speaking the truth and, and loving them will require us to be honest about the gender of the person we're with. Instagram, you know, they updated their bio so you can identify your preferred pronouns. thought, man, this is getting more and more in our face. Who do you think is going to be unhappy if you don't put your preferred pronouns on your bio? Even if your pronouns are in, in line with your gender, the very fact that you don't put them up is going to make people unhappy with you, right? People are going to notice, look, uh, I noticed you, you got your Instagram profile and you didn't put your gender, you didn't put your preferred pronouns there. Are, do you not support LGBTQ+. Are you not tolerant? Are you not compassionate toward these people? Look, these guys got real issues and you're not willing to, to support them? Real questions, real people. Will you respond with love, married with truth, and say, look, I, I, can't, I can't affirm and endorse things that are against the truth. I love Susie or Johnny, whatever his name is, her name is, but I can't do certain things because it conflicts with what I know to be true. Pronouns is just one example. Racism is another one. You're told to affirm certain propositions about racism just by right of the color of your skin or right of the means that you have or don't have. And disagreements to those propositions are going to get you in a lot of trouble. How does love respond? Well, love responds with truth. Not angrily, not belligerently, and not with superiority in your soul, but with a matter of fact, this is, this is the truth. And I'm unwilling to bow the knee to certain cultural ideas just because it makes you feel better. Back in World War I, the British naval fleet was suffering damages, uh, losing ship after ship against the German, the, the German naval fleet. Germans sank several of their ships and it confused them for a long while until they figured out what the issue was. The sides of their ship, the hull, were reinforced. They were strong. They were sturdy. But what wasn't strong and sturdy was their deck. Their deck was vulnerable. And so when the Germans would fire cannons and landing on top of the deck, it would sink the ship immediately, or at least quickly thereafter. Once they figured that out, they reinforced their ships, retrofitted them, and made them ready for battle. And soon thereafter, they started losing a lot less ships. Knowing whether or not your Christian faith is seaworthy and whether or not it can withstand attacks and winds and waves and rocks is going to depend on whether or not your ship is reinforced with truth and love. You can't just have one and not the other. And as John already made clear here, the Christian faith that is real and lasting is supported by the twin virtues of truth and love. 
If you want to know you're a Christian, you want to be 100% confident, start tonight by asking yourself, do I understand the truth and do I understand love? Do I understand that there are gifts given to me by God and that now being obedient is a right and good thing for me to do? And that my love must be more than words. It must be action-oriented. It must have a bias for activity. That's where we're going to start tonight. We'll wrap it up next week. But for now, let's pray. (laughs) 